In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messages to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were going and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants who did not go down to his house. David was told, Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought amongst Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, When you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, Why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerob, Besheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Now let me lead us in prayer. Keep your Bibles open at 2 Samuel 11. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you speak to us in your word and by the power of your spirit uh, to strengthen us in the faith and to make us more like our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. We pray that you enable us to do that 
uh, again this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, you've uh, probably heard the saying that power corrupts and that absolute power corrupts absolutely. Uh, apparently, that saying is attributed to some guy whose name is Lord Acton, which sounds like a rather powerful person. Uh, it's a cool saying, but it's not true. Uh, power itself is not actually a bad thing. How do I know that? Easy. Our God is all-powerful, and there never has, nor will there ever be, any hint of corruption in him. God is light in him. There is no darkness. God's use of power is only ever always 100% good. Power can and should be used for good. It's not something that necessarily corrupts. The reason power often corrupts, and we get those sayings from the Lord Acton people, is because it's wielded by people with sinful hearts, hearts that incline toward evil rather than good. Even with the redeemed people of God, there remains, this side of heaven, residual sinful tendencies in our hearts, which, when combined with the wielding of power, can create massive disasters, such as, of course, the epic disaster for God's people brought about by the sin of the powerful King David that we look at this morning. The sad train wreck that we're witnessing here in the life of King David is almost on par with the fall itself. There are some parallels with Genesis 3 in today's passage to Samuel 11. There are so many things also that I expect we will want to know and understand about David's adultery with Bathsheba and the events that transpired thereafter. But in the way God presents this account of David's great sins, he has some particular things that he wants us, his people, to take special note of. And they're not always the things that you and I would naturally wonder about straight away. So let's brace ourselves for this train wreck and make sure we're letting God do the talking to our hearts this morning and uh, we'll get stuck into it. The speed and matter-of-factness with which the following events are described, I think, adds to their horror. It leaves us exclaiming David's own phrase, how the mighty have fallen. We get the context, the background, really, from verse 1, which says, at the return of the year, at the, times, at the time that the kings or messengers had gone out, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. And yes, as you can all see now, annoyingly, uh, there's a translation issue with the very first verse. Our NIVs have a slightly different translation at the beginning, but I'm convinced what you see behind you is far more accurate, and I really don't want to waste time dealing with that. But of course, as always, feel free to come and grab me afterwards if you like to know why that's there. But basically, what we are being told here is that it has been almost a year since the initial confrontation began with the Ammonites. And I hope you were here last week and we saw how that started off with the messages and the, the buttocks thing, you know, that funny part. It's been about a year since that. They've now, the Ammonites have retreated 
and David has, had defeated their hired armies and therefore left those Ammonites by themselves and helpless. Unlike, as we saw last week, the vassals of Hadadezer, for example, who had made peace with Israel, the Ammonites had not, which meant that it was now time, because the year's getting on, for them to face the judgment of God's king. So David's army have now destroyed the Ammonites and are laying siege to one of their big cities, which presumably the last lot of them have fled to. David, as we see in verse 1, remained in Jerusalem. Initially, in the war with the Ammonites, David had also remained in Jerusalem. We saw that last week as well. He only came out when it was time for the big offensive uh, attack. And he can do that. God, as we've seen earlier, has established David as king and subdued his enemies such that now he has the kind of power where he can say to one man, come and he comes, and to one man, go and he goes. But of course, in such a situation, there's the increased temptation to misuse said power. So verse 2, one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. Now, every man of God knows exactly what to do in this situation. Given that, by and large, as part of the good way that God has created men, we're designed to be sexually attracted, by and large, through visual appeal, the obvious thing to do would be simply turn away and get on with whatever it else is that you're doing. Clearly, the viewing was unintended. We will soon find out that what Bathsheba was doing was entirely appropriate, and the only reason David saw her was on account of the unexpected circumstance of the vantage point of a high-roofed palace combined with time and chance. Nothing wrong with that, nothing wrong with a naked woman, as a matter of fact, the first praise of God issued by a human in the Bible is by a guy who's literally looking at a naked woman. Nothing wrong with that, provided David turns away, lets it go by. But of course, he failed to be a godly and respectful man at this point. Verse 3, and David sent someone to find out about her. Because he, he can, go and he goes, come and he comes. David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Elaim and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Well, like every woman, she's someone's daughter. And the implication is that David has not turned away. He's allowed the innocent view to develop into a lustful desire. And desire, after it is conceived, gives birth to sin and when sin is full grown, it gives birth to, to death. James chapter 1, verse 15. But he still now has the opportunity to turn. He's just found out that she's someone else's wife. Do not covet your neighbor's wife. Especially when you've got more than one of your own. But sadly, David continues along the dark path. Like most adulteries, there's a lead-up, a series of compromising choices by which a person justifies to themselves an increasing closeness to the object of their sinful, self-centred lust and desire and fantasy. 
And then the bomb goes off. Verse 4, then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. So short, so matter-of-fact, and therefore so brutal and cutting. We might want to know about Bathsheba's thoughts and motives here. Did she put up a fight? Did he get her intoxicated first? Was she so terrified and so coerced that this could be considered almost rape? Or were things the other way? Did she encourage what was happening and take delight in what was going on? All of those things are possible. And frankly, I do want to know. But we're not told. All of them are possible, but they're also all immaterial. The focus is on David and his ungodly behaviour. You see, David was abusing his power. He knew, as we'll soon find out, that the woman's husband was away. And when the king's messengers, plural, come to the door, well, that puts the woman in a rather vulnerable situation, regardless of how welcome or unwelcome this encounter may have been for her. There are echoes of that original fall from Genesis 3 in this part of the Scriptures. David saw the thing that was pleasing to the eye and David took in defiance of God's very clear command. And compared to David, what little we are told about Bathsheba's behaviour shows that she's presented, in the first instance at least, as being a righteous woman. The next part of verse 4 says now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. In other words, she was obeying the law of God given in Leviticus 15. After her regular period, she was washing in order to become ceremonially clean. But of course, the narrator kept that piece of information until now because it of course also lets us know that there's a possibility she'll be in the fertile part of her menstrual cycle, so she might become pregnant. It seems that wasn't on David's mind, though. The next thing we're told, which gives a very false sense of finality for David, is simply that, then she went back home. Ah, good, it's all done now. No one will ever know. David had his lustful indulgence, and the event is over. Hence, verse 5 comes like the second bombshell. The woman conceived and sent word to David. Now someone's sending something to him, saying, I am pregnant. So instead of using his power for good, David has used it to commit adultery. Certainly with some level, at least, of coercion of the woman involved, given the power imbalance. And now... She's pregnant. If ever there would be a time to do a serious repentance, to apologise profusely to God and to Bathsheba, and my goodness, to Uriah, to beg for his life, for God's prescribed punishment for adultery is death. This would be it. But sadly, David again misuses his power by attempting to do a cover-up, which, of course, ends up being a big fail. Verse 6, so, she's pregnant, so, 
verse 6. David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were and how the war was going. And David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him, probably some fine wine. It's a clever idea, isn't it? Get Bathsheba's husband back from the fighting on the pretense of wanting to find out about the war, which would have seemed totally legit. I mean, a king would do that. But with the aim of getting him to have sex with his wife, such that it would then be assumed that the child is his and not David's. The whole wash your feet thing is almost certainly an idiomatic way of saying take a load off, which, you know, probably includes sleeping with your wife. But just like in the past, many people had their plans foiled on account of King David being more righteous than they anticipated. So now David's plan gets foiled on account of Uriah being so painfully righteous. Verse 9, but Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark, that's where God made a dwelling place for his name, by the way, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house? to eat and drink and make love to my wife. So he knows what David had in mind. As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. What an irony. He's committed an offence that deserves death. As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. And so you wonder if David feels the sting of his own failing in contrast to Uriah's holiness, to Uriah's piety. Maybe David should have been out accompanying the Ark of the Covenant with everyone else rather than sleeping with Uriah's wife. In any event, David takes another shot. This time he uses his power to get Uriah drunk in the hope that it will reduce his resolve to be so God-honouring, so righteous. And that's a great tactic Because if there's anything that will erode your righteous resolve, it's drunkenness. That's a great way to stop being righteous. Drunkenness leads to debauchery, we're told in the New Testament, which is why all mature Christians are careful to avoid drunkenness. So, verse 12, then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat amongst his master's servants. He did not go home. Translation, even with an hopefully unwanted intoxication, Uriah is still unhumanly righteous enough to remain devoted to Yahweh. David's cover-up attempt has failed. So now will he finally undergo a sackcloth and ashes repentance? Or will he still think only of protecting himself and continue down his dark, destructive path for the sake of his own selfish 
preservation and interest. As we know, sadly, that's the latter. David now opts for murder as the solution. So verse 14, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. You know what's fascinating about this part of the story is that David actually counts on Uriah's righteousness in order to get him killed. David counts on Uriah's righteousness in order to see him executed. You see, if Uriah had been an untrustworthy servant, if he'd been a scoundrel, he'd be the kind of guy, of course, who would have opened the letter to see what David was doing. Every sticky beak would have some idea about it. That would have been a very natural temptation. And if he did open it, he'd figure out that it says, kill Uriah, and he would have gone AWOL, and that would have been the end. But sadly, it's precisely because he was righteous that Uriah marched resolutely to the place where his own people would, in effect, hand him over to the Gentiles in order to have him murdered. Reminds you of someone, doesn't it? Reminds you of someone whose righteousness David should have foreshadowed. But sadly, he's doing so no longer. The plot required Joab to do something tactically so questionable that he, even he anticipates David will scold him for it. Even though David commanded for Uriah to be killed, he did the, an obviously dumb military tactic thing in order to make that happen. And, and, and so, so much so that he thinks even then David will say, what are you doing? So he anticipates a bit of an angry response from David. I won't read out the whole thing, but the basic gist is that Joab has to really bend the rules of engagement in order to ensure Uriah got murdered. But David, the great military leader who knows that victory was already in the bag for this battle, overlooks such an obvious fail because it achieved his purpose of having Uriah murdered. When some people want someone executed, they can bend the rules so far, they can bend the custom to suit their own evil desire. Kind of like a council of Jews meeting together to decide how they're going to crucify an innocent man. The ordeal ends with a profoundly ironic, happy ending. Verse 26, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son and they lived happily ever after. Notice, sadly, that she's just the woman again. She's not Bathsheba, she's just Uriah's wife, mourning for her dead husband again. I'd love to know how this was taken by Bathsheba. Did she sense or know that David was responsible for Uriah's being killed? Did she have some kind of guilty relief that she'd not have to explain her pregnancy to him? Did she mourn him like any woman might normally mourn her dead husband without any thought of the recent events? Was she glad or was she sad 
to be brought into David's house and become his wife. Again, we're not told. Because for the point of God's word he's making for us, it's immaterial. What matters is that David is the main actor and his self-centred actions that his power gave him the opportunity to exercise are also clearly in defiance of God's intentions. The last sentence is the most chilling and devastating of all. In English, in our Bibles it reads, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Sounds almost polite and British, but the thing David did displeased the Lord. It's like, what? Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) But in the Hebrew, the word for displeased is the word for seeing, which is often used also for for knowing. The evil thing David had done was seen or known by the Lord. A, A good way to render it in English, which captures the ominous and dreadful effect that it ought to have would be to say something like, the evil thing David did, the Lord knew. It's the one time that you suddenly just have the perspective of God right at the end, and that's the, that's the big punch, really, at the end of this chapter. The big tragedy for the people of God is that we can so easily forget that there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that our Heavenly Father does not See, there is actually no such thing as doing, saying, or thinking anything in secret. God is not only all-powerful, he's also all-knowing. The heart is deceitful above all things, and the Lord always looks at the heart, always looks at the heart, for he is all-knowing. Deceitfulness is one of the main themes throughout this first half of uh, really a two-chapter chunk. What I'm giving you this morning is, in one sense, half a sermon. Um, You'll see why that is when you're here next week. Be here next week, by the way. Um, The deceitfulness of David, there's no question that's the scene. We've just seen it, you know, all the way through, you know, the lies, the cover-up, blah, blah, blah. But the fact that the Lord always looks at the heart is the last sort of punch. And it so ominously just hangs there at the end. The Lord knew. When Mr. Doe thinks that he's all alone and he'll click on the link to that pornographic website, the Lord knows. When Mrs. Doe sent that little mildly flirtatious message to a guy who's not her husband, the Lord knows. And the Lord is the Lord who will never leave the guilty unpunished. Even for those who are his children and therefore know his ultimate forgiveness, even then, as we'll see in the next chapter, there are always, always dreadful consequences for sexual immorality. Always. So, to take stock of where we are and sort of cut this sermon in half before we get to the next chapter, which I'm really excited about because of the whole story with the lamb thing. Anyway, a couple of implications. There's clearly the focus on David misusing his power. Uh, The misuse of power is something, and I think as uh, people growing in godliness, we ought to have a sense of and to be aware of. Um, 
Put up your hand if you've ever done any safe ministry training in our diocese in order to do some... Yeah, that, praise God. And I would be delighted if that was just a thing that, frankly, all members of our congregations... I did some recently. I redid the, um, the essentials course. And one of the things that's really helpful in, in, in that training is that it just reminds you of how to think about the way your relationship sort of functions with anyone and everyone else. Like, where do I have power or where does someone have power and influence over me? Just that awareness alone can be so profoundly helpful in in you relating righteously to those around about you. Um, Having a sense of how power works and functions can be really, really helpful and important. Uh, And... uh, one really, really easy way of doing that is just keep doing a safe ministry course. Or if you haven't done one, you want to say, I want to learn about, I'm not doing ministry with, with youth or children. It doesn't matter. I, I want to learn about safe ministry. Please, come ask me. Even better, come ask my wife. She'd probably be delighted to hear that. She works for the, the organ. Well, I forgot. what. It's not PSU anymore. Sorry, sweetie. What is it? The, yeah, the safe ministry people. See them. <laughs> Uh, that's really helpful to understand how power is used and functions and so that ideally you do not misuse it a David so easily did. Which brings me to a little sub-point on this implication. See how opportunity is really one of the most sort of surefire ways that sin will take its root and take its hold. Uh, there is the sinful heart which has a tendency... But often that tendency can't come to any sort of fruition because there's no opportunity to exploit a situation. But when you've got lots of power like David does, he can just make the opportunity. He can send someone and they'll go to find out about her. He can summon her and she'll come. He can call Uriah and he'll be there. He can say, have him murdered. The power can create opportunity and opportunity is a big ticket item when it comes to sin. You want to see someone sin lots? Give them more opportunity to do it. Secondly, and this is probably the most obvious implication at this point, in the words of our Lord himself, flee from sexual immorality. How does Jesus approach the idea of lust and adultery? Easy, cut off your hand, gouge out your eye, and do it before it's too late. Most sexual sins of this nature, and we saw it in David as well, don't sort of, people don't wake up one day and go, I'm going to go and be really sexually immoral today. That's what I'm going to do. It's a nice, it's a sunny day, so adultery is on the cards. It never happens like that, right? There's one little compromise and another one and another one and another one. No, 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 no. Cut it. That's the way. It's one of the years, as a man, I love this, you know, a lot of implications, a lot of teachings from scripture, you've got to like be transformed by the renewing of your mind, you've got to think pretty carefully, how am I going to make sure that I uh, love my Lord and my Saviour Jesus Christ in my conduct? This one's easy. What's the antidote for sexual immorality? Cut it off. Cold turkey, hardcore, take no prisoners, no compromise. The computer makes you sin, you don't need a computer. The phone makes you sin, you don't need a phone, Right? Looking out the window makes you sin, for goodness sake, put a, border it up or something, right? What, you know what I mean? Like there's, you don't have to think very hard about applying the Word of God and the teaching of our Lord at this point. By the way, it's interesting that one of the possible 
and I use that word very advisedly, is very importantly, possible reasons that a Christian marriage can end in a way other than death is adultery. Possible. It's concessional. It's not that when there's adultery, the marriage must end. As a matter of fact, there are some unsung heroes amongst the churches of God where there has been an adultery in a marriage and they have sought to reconcile and stay together and praise God for, for people that do that. Uh, but I can understand why that's the concession Jesus makes, except in the case of marital unfaithfulness, because trust is so damaged and so eroded, it's hard to have even a base for where that marriage can kind of start or be. Praise God that in Jesus there is healing, there is forgiveness. Our Lord is in the business of reconciliation and repentance, which is one of the most wonderful things about being a follower of Jesus is that you can even know his forgiveness and repentance in very real ways, including you know, the marriages out there that have withstood things like this. But that brings me to the final implication that I'm cheating with. <laughs> That's a terrible pun for what I've... Anyway, the, way I, the reason I say I'm cheating with this is it's really from next week's passage, but I can't help but just to bring it in. You see, we are seeing half the story. When you get the Lord's response to David in the next chapter, there's this fantastic little phrase that the prophet Nathan gives to David, saying that the Lord has passed over your sin, has overlooked your sin, David. We will get all the terrible consequences and they will be dreadful. There'll be worldly consequences, especially for a severe sin like this. But the Lord is the gracious God who can pass over David's sin and the reason I'm cheating in order to give that is because I'd sort of I'd hate to be a one of those moralistic preachers who says do really good or God's going to hate you amen right that's that's not what the Bible's saying at this point uh, our Lord Jesus Christ gave himself in order to pay for all sin what David has done here is not the unforgivable sin there are murderers and adulterers like David who will be in the kingdom of heaven because of the potency of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that was shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. The Lord can take upon himself the moral load, I suppose, of David's sinfulness and can pay the price in full and does. And it may be the case that you have uh, erred quite significantly in areas like David has. Let me make it real easy for you. In one sense, all of you have, so have I. The lustful thought is adultery. The hateful thought is murder, says Jesus, Matthew 5. We're all in one sense in the same boat. It doesn't stop the Apostle Paul from saying all other sins a man commits are outside his body, so flee from the sexual ones. That should be better in, in the worldly sense of sorry, it should be a thing that you're better at avoiding than almost anything else. But even then, our Lord is the Lord who can forgive and does forgive sin. Repentance, reconciliation are thoroughly possible because of the personal work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm delighted that we're going to hear more about that next week. For now, let me conclude our time in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you are the God who looks at the heart and who tells us the truth, that our hearts are indeed deceitful above all things. They are beyond cure, humanly speaking, but you in your infinite power and in your infinite goodness have overcome 
that massive barrier that separates the sinful heart from the holy God. And we thank you that you've done that in the personal work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we lament the kind of disaster that we've seen in the page of Scripture before us with David. And we recognise that if someone as great as him can fall to such a depth, then it must be certain that all of us are thoroughly capable of the same thing. We thank you, therefore, that it's not by our own effort, but by your amazing grace and love, that we can stand before you as holy, as blameless, as forgiven by the blood of the Lord. And we pray, Father, earnestly, by the power of your Spirit at work within us, that we would so hate, so loathe and detest, so radically kill the kinds of things that we see David doing here, that we would gouge out the eye, cut off the hand, take the necessary measures to avoid such horrendous disaster on account of sexual sin. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.